Good afternoon, everybody. It's my uh, great pleasure to welcome you to this, the final lecture of the summer Rare Book School lecture series. Um, tonight's lecture has been sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities, our 2017 grant for the Global Book Histories Initiative continues to pay great div dividends. Anadita Ghosh is professor of modern Indian history at the University of Manchester in England. That's not Manchester in Vermont, not Manchester in New Hampshire, but Manchester, England. She earned her doctoral degree at Cambridge University and joined the history department at the University of Manchester in 2001, having served as a Simon Fellow between 1999 and 2000. Professor Ghosh's first monograph, Power in Print, Popular Publishing and the Politics of Language and Culture in a Colonial Society, 1778 to 1905, was published by Oxford University Press in 2006. Her most recent book, Claiming the City, Protest, Crime, and Violence in Colonial Calcutta, published also by Oxford University Press in 2016, is based on research funded by a major grant funded by the British Academy. And uh, to get a British Academy grant these days is a major, major deal. In Claiming the City, Professor Ghosh examines the city of Calcutta in the 19th and 20th centuries, analyzing its material cultures and social structures in the contexts of colonialism, technology, changing patterns of occupation and public spaces, crime, scandals, and protest. Professor Gosh is also what is referred to in the UK as a media dom. There are many examples I could adduce, but the most prominent uh, is her two-part uh, BBC Radio 4 series, Printing a Nation, which is a brief history of printing in India, which was broadcast not once, but twice, once in the fall and once in the spring of 2017. A fellow of the Royal Historical Society, which is also a very big deal, she serves on the editorial board of Book History. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished lecturer this evening. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, RBS, for giving me this opportunity to talk to you today about the history of the book in South Asia. Thank you for your generosity, your warm hospitality, and to see the wonderful community that you have at RBS. It's my great privilege to meet all these curators, booksellers, librarians, archivists, the dedicated community behind books, and it's marvelous to be here. And we take, as historians, we take you for granted, let me tell you that, so we walk in and out of archives all the time. 
not appreciating fully the amount of effort that goes into the work that you do. So coming here has really helped me realize that to a great extent. So thank you for that. So as you can see, the title of my lecture today is Cheap and Bad Books, A Social History of Printing and Publishing in Colonial India. It's based largely on my work that was published in 2006, The Power in Print book, but I have continued to work with print despite moving over to discuss uh, in, in my other work uh, themes like the colonial city and urban space. Print is something that still defines me as a historian. Printing and publishing is still very central to what I do. And most recently, I have published uh, a chapter in an edited volume which has to do with pre-print cultures in colonial Bengal. So print you know, continues to kind of really fire me in my work. So I thought it would be a good idea to give you a summary of, of what I really work on. And also because I think the history of the book in South Asia has not been told, talked about that much, has not been told that much, particularly uh, you know, in, in a kind of global history context, although I think South Asianists know about it a great deal. So without further ado, let me start with what I have in front of us. We have this wonderful picture of booksellers in Calcutta today. You will often find some of them actually even sitting on the books, so I, I did have a few of those pictures, but uh, somehow this, this I felt was more appropriate and also it was a sharper image. But this is very much the image that you find in the book market in Calcutta today. It would have been some version of that that exists in my period in the 19th century. The correlation between Western impact under colonialism, the coming of print, and standardized high vernacular literature, and not just English literature, and the awakening of the Indian intelligentsia still dominate standard narratives of modern India. So there is a very general received understanding of the coming of English education in India and what it did in terms of nationalist awakening. So there's a lot of emphasis on not just English print literature, but also a very modern, refined vernacular uh, print literature that seems to be the bearer of Indian nationalism. These studies have focused exclusively on a dominant print culture shaped by the educated elite and have tended to assume a linear causal link between Western education, control over print, technology, and dissemination of Occidental knowledge. All the newer studies have now begun to question this. When I was first writing in the early years of the last decade, this was the prevalent understanding. For long, Bengal has been looked upon by historians as the harbinger of modernity in the subcontinent. Fortified with Western education, Bengali intellectuals are supposed to have effected a Western-style renaissance in contemporary thought and the liberal arts. The Bengali language itself it is thought to have evolved into a modern vernacular capable of communicating the most rational and sublime ideas. However, what this perspective overlooks is that print in the 19th century, in 19th century Bengal was not used and engineered by dominant power groups alone. Given its cheapness and accessibility, the printed book enjoyed a wide circulation. Dominant ideas on literary taste and styles also did not go unchallenged. It's important to bring back these reader groups into focus. Focusing on more commercial forms of print literature, as I do, 
is a useful counterweight to historiography deriving from only high refined writings, which perpetuate images of an undifferentiated, enlightened, Western-educated Bengali middle class. Now, at this point, I think it would be useful to see where Calcutta sits on this map. Even though Calcutta is not quite pointed out on that map, it gives you a sense of where Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India lies, because I thought it was a useful thing to have in order to get the whole picture of the subcontinent rather than a narrow-down idea of where Calcutta is. But Calcutta is somewhere there. Okay. And, and when I say Bengal, I'm actually talking of undivided Bengal, so that covers modern-day Bangladesh as well, even though I'm pretty much talking a lot about Calcutta, which is here. But the Bengali language at that time, and even now, is spoken over this entire region. As a vernacular that was adopted by both the ruling classes and the indigenous population as the principal medium for communication, Following the establishment of the first printing press, the vernacular first, printing, first vernacular printing press in 1800, Bengali marked a site that was ridden by struggles for domination and conquest across a broad social spectrum. The encounter of two cultures, particularly in a colonial situation, is bound to give rise to struggles over questions of identity. But in, the 19th century, but in 19th century Bengal, more than anything else, the language and its written literature became the object of immense scrutiny, surveillance and debate among the Bengali people and the rulers alike. For the British bureaucracy, it was a language that had to be mastered for administrative convenience and for gaining access to crucial local information. So colonial servants had to learn Bengali. And of course, Calcutta at that time was the capital of British India. So you, if you were a successful colonial servant, you had to know the languages. And this led to a lot of a very interesting experimentation from the point of view of both printing and uh, vernacular studies where Bengali becomes a great focus in terms of uh, you know, a preparing of typefaces, in, in, in terms of setting up printing presses in terms of experimenting with the language. So, you know, there, there's lots that's going on. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But for the native intelligentsia, it's something else. It becomes a bearer of Indianness, of cultural identity. In the active intellectual climate that had been stirred up following the encounter with the West, Bengali became the medium of self-expression of a conscious and articulate urban literati. With growing numbers among the literate population and a prodigious printing and publishing industry, increasingly large reader-writer groups jostled for recognition in the ongoing debates. At the heart of this process lay the efforts of the British and urban Bengal literati to create a new literary prose Bengali as part of a civilizing drive and to distinguish it from what they saw as earlier loose colloquial forms. Allegedly polluted by rusticity and an abundant sexuality, the project redefined ideas of obscene and genteel in the emerging print culture through the application of new standards. A crucial step in the formation of this modern literary canon was a conscious separation of this standard language from its others, the new Bengali that became the hallmark defining the urban educated middle classes 
was an essential tool for establishing their power over less privileged groups. And this gains an added significance from the fact that this is for the first time Bengali is being perpetrated in print form. So there are two things happening with Bengali. Bengali had primarily, in literary terms, been um, uh, not, uh, not a prose language, but a language of poetry, a language of songs, a language of you know, lyrical uh, uh, ballads. But for the first time, it is being kind of forged and shaped into prose Bengali because that's what you need for the writing of dry administrative documents. So there's a lot that is going on here. So it's again not just that Bengali is being printed for the first time, so therefore, you know, all kinds of pressures of standardization in terms of print, but also all kinds of pressures in terms of the language itself, which has to be forged into a new prose format. The hierarchies so constructed were primarily of two kinds. The first established a divide between written and spoken varieties, and the second sought to purge the Perso-Arabic element in the language. This was a departure from the folk language of medieval Bengal, which had been a highly syncretic one shared by Hindus and Muslims alike. It employed both colloquial as well as Perso-Arabic words and borrowed idioms freely from local myths, beliefs, and practices of both communities. Now, of course, the Perso-Arabic tradition is very important in India because the Mughals who had been in power before the coming of the British and also the various uh, other dynasties like the Turks and Afghans before them for a long time had left this legacy of the Perso-Arabic vocabulary in the language. And here you find for the first time an attempt, a very strong attempt, to deny that legacy. Prior to the reformist drive, the literati itself had participated in these linguistic cultures. But with the beginnings of linguistic purification in the early 19th century, an enlightened, and I use that word within quotes, upper class male consciousness chose to shift the burden of vulgarity to less privileged groups. Women, the lowly classes, and poor Muslims, their status being mapped by their speech patterns and literary cultures. However, as I show in my work, commercial print cultures originating from the numerous presses in Calcutta and its suburbs that were shared by a wide range of other non-elite urban groups disseminated literary preferences that ran counter to the efforts of the reforming literati. Contrary to the general belief that standardized high literatures succeeded in wiping out lesser print cultures, these in fact survived with much vigor with interesting consequences for the social history of the period. The educated lower middle classes living in the towns and cities were the major constituents of a commercial low-life literature, voicing their own distinctive concerns and were a significant part of the contemporary literary cultural world. Now, what I want to now focus on is what's going on in terms of book production. So, you know, uh, so far I've talked about literary tastes and I've talked about what happens to language as it's becoming for the first time, um, you know, imprinted in, in, in the print format. But, you know, where does all of this activity go on? Where's the book market? Where are the shops? Where are the booksellers? Um, now, as I show, what has not been sufficiently appreciated is that cheap printing techniques and the spread of basic literacy had combined to create from the mid-century onwards a sizable body of printer publishers, authors, and readers of relatively plebeian origin. 
Privileged publishing failed to satisfy the demand created by this enlarged readership and by changing literary tastes. These are groups who did not go to university, were not university educated. They, they were perhaps a lot of them were clerks, some of them were, were educated and then returned their education to business, but didn't pursue higher study. They're, they're not our university educated literati. So their tastes and their demands are very different from the high literature that's floating around. And they are, they are the consumer groups that are of uh, interest to me. So there is this immense demand that is then created by this kind of literacy, where there is a demand for this kind of books. And printer publishers are quick to realize that. And they step in and they fill that gap in the market. And they fill it very well. So this is where I say that the rampant capitalism of the less responsible and legally bound presses stepped in. At the center of this remarkable phenomenon lay the numerous small presses huddled close together in the narrow lanes and bylanes of the Bottala area, a part of the teeming so-called native town in North Calcutta. Despite educated middle-class disapproval, these small presses did a brisk trade in cheap ephemeral pamphlet literature consisting of almanacs, popular religious mythologies, sensational romances and dramas, erotic poems and songs and the like, which enjoyed a large and popular leadership, readership in lower middle-class urban and rural homes. The Bengal Library quarterly reports catalogued on the basis of the publications registered return about 200,000 titles between 1868 and 1905, which Robert Danton estimates, I quote from him, more by far was, so the, this figure, he says, was more by far than the total output of France during the Age of Enlightenment. So that gives you a sense of the tremendous volume of publications that were issuing from, from these presses. Of course, besides what was being printed, there is the continuing importance of oral traditions, which persists well into the second half of the 19th century, which ensured that print crossed the boundaries of the literate. And that's another interesting thing that we have to keep in mind. We do not have to assume that it was only the literate people who could consume such books because these were read aloud. It was a common practice during the time to read aloud such groups to a gathered group of listeners, a practice that continued right through the 19th and even into the early 20th century. Woodcut and metal engraved pictures of mythological and even more contemporary scenes also sold at Battala at very low prices. And I have some of these woodcuts to show you. Uh, that's my book that I was talking about earlier. It's published in 2006. You have two very different kinds of images here. On the left, this is uh, the god Kartik. He's a male god. He's a warrior god. Uh, this is a page from an almanac that was published between 1842-43. So the almanac was a very handy uh, manual for a lot of people. It even had things like railway timetables, so not just the positions of, of the planets and uh, the holy days of the year, but it also had a lot of very practical information and images like that. Uh, on the right-hand side, of course, you find a very secular image. This is the one you would have found on the poster for this uh, lecture. And it's about a pampered wife who uh, is there sitting on the shoulders of her husband while the mother-in-law, that is the husband's mother, is being ill-treated. 
Uh, and this is a very strong theme of the times uh, in the 19th century where women are often blamed for a lot of ills in society and I'm sure that was happening elsewhere in the world and not just in Bengal and perhaps to a certain extent happens all the time. Um, but that was uh, uh, again and it's an example of uh, a secular woodcut from those times. And this is again very interesting. It's an image, it's a mythological scene uh, from um, a, 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 a very well-known epic from uh, India called the Mahabharata. Some of you might know about it. And this is the disrobing of Draupadi, who's a, a very important female figure in the Mahabharata. And she is uh, disrobed by one of the male characters in, in the epic. Um, and even while that is being depicted, it's interesting to note that the, the villain who's disrobing her has an additional dimension because he's dressed like a European soldier. So that's actually a British soldier that is being depicted here. So you know there are ways in which these mythological images could tell very modern stories and you have a very good example of that here. It's possible to see then how print, far from perpetuating dominant cultural norms, had actually opened up a process of dissemination of more plebeian writing. So crucially, therefore, Bengali language and literature needs to be located within these complex cross-currents of social conflict and shifting literary values and establish the voice of these peripheral cultures. Now, the term Bhattala books is used loosely by modern scholars of Bengali literature to indicate various badly printed items from religious and mythological literature, legends and romances to popular dramas that were produced by these cheap presses. But the early defects characterizing these works had disappeared almost completely by the 1870s when productions began to benefit from improved technology. So they started off with the wooden presses and they had the metal presses and over time, you know, their they, 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 they trade became finer. And it's also interesting to know that the earliest generation of these woodcutters and metal engravers had learned their trade from the British because they had been working for the British establishments, setting up their presses, cutting out their punches. And very soon they got tired of the job and they realized you know, there was money to be made in the commercial book market. And that's where they shifted their interests. But let me give you uh, an example of uh, some of these early uh, printed books from those times. Um, so this is slightly later, this is 1876, uh, and you know, there, there are other more improved versions appearing in 1876, but this is an interesting one, um, where this, uh, these kind of woodcuts uh, continue to feature late into the 19th century. This is from the illustrated Jagnama, and it's published by the Murat Sabi Press in Calcutta in 1876. Okay. Uh, later on, you will see I have brought along with me uh, much later versions of books like that, so you can actually handle and get a feel of those books uh, um, produced later, but you know, done pretty much in a similar style. I probably have another one. So that's a woodcut from a very early 19th century work. Okay, so 
we've talked about the book market, we've talked about the, uh, the, the printers and publishers and so on. But then who were the readers? You know, who were reading these works? Can we pin them down? Um, as, as you would know, readers are impossible to pin down. Readership is, is, is the most difficult thing to study in book history. However, I will attempt, and I, as I have attempted in my own book, and I have been extremely fortunate to find really good evidence of readership. The British were very good at producing reports. Um, some based on these reports, but some also based on contemporary Bengali memoirs, uh, letters written by people, library reports, and so on. I've been able to get together a sense of. So I'll give you nuggets of that. You know, there's there's a lot more that I have written on, but it'll give you a sense of these readers and you know who they were. So as I was saying with new opportunities that were opened up by the fast expanding government and business networks in the latter half of the 19th century, there is a lot of uh, movement into these offices. Uh, you have people particularly serving in the lower clerical ranks with a little bit of education and um, there's a great rush to fill those offices. But interestingly, a lot of these are immigrant populations in the city. They either come to the city on a daily basis and leave at the end of the day, or they're there only for the week, and then they leave for the weekend, they return to their homes in the countryside. Now, this is an interesting factor for my readership, because we often find that these are people who don't want to read heavy books. You know, they're, they're tired at the end of the day, they want to read lighter stuff, and also books that are not too thick, not too big in terms of volume. So I, I make a little note about that and I'll talk to you about it. But let me give you a sense of the city and you know, who were these people who were coming in and out of it. In 1876, Calcutta had 72% of its population constituted of immigrants, which is a large percentage, and housed 83 registered boarding hostels. The rapid development of numerous mill towns along the river Hooghly was a prominent feature at the end of the uh, 19th century. By 1914, 24 Parganas was a distinctly urban district with 26 towns inhabited by 22.5% of its population, and considerable areas in the contiguous districts of Hara and Hooghly that were urban and semi-urban in character. So there's rapid modernization that's going on as well, industrialization of Calcutta as well. So not just your government offices, but also mill workers are coming into the city. Besides, of course, there's this floating population moving in and out of the suburbs, uh, arriving daily uh, to Calcutta to work. For contemporary Calcuttans, the city itself, with its fast-expanding red-light area, which is a very strong feature of the times, various theatres and other forms of street entertainment, um, and opium dens, which were also very popular, possessed numerous and inexpensive attractions, especially at the end of a working day. But for the people commuting daily to the city and back, the cheaper and more accessible item was the printed book. What were appreciated in particular were small books of perhaps 30 or 40 pages, serial publications of mysteries and adventures, pamphlet farces, cheap tracts, and some of the less illustrious periodicals sold very well. I have with me, as I've said before, copies of from much later times, but you can get a sense of the kind of pamphlets that people would have been reading because I can't take 
or buy books. I've not been able, I've not come across books from my period that I can actually buy and keep for myself. I'd be lucky if I could. Uh, so the ones I've consulted have always been in libraries. So these are much later versions of uh, similar kind of tracts. A Calcutta Review report observed in 1851 that the extensive demand for Bengali brochures proved that, I quote, the Hindus were disposed to reading works in the shape of periodicals, unquote. Wandering hawkers and peddlers helped diffuse these works far into the rural interior. Very often, mailers or fairs were ideal venues for selling them. With such widespread distribution networks, it was easy for the Battala publisher to reach the average reader in the countryside. Now, there has been some writing on this which uh, have uh, suggested that a lot of these were high-caste educated people who were reading such books. But my evidence shows that this was clearly not the case because if you look at the caste names of the printer publishers and if you see the uh, names, you do an analysis of the surnames of, of the authors, it often shows these are very uh, people coming from lower castes, lower classes as well, and running really lowbrow presses to produce the books that they are producing. Um, so it's, who were these people? They were mostly from the caste groups of smiths and artisans, so they were good at metal engraving, they knew, they were, they, they knew how to carve the metal, and so therefore they transferred these skills very easily to the book trade. Skilled in metalworking, they manned the cheap presses and remained connected with the trade as printers, publishers, even authors and artists. So this is a very good example. This is by a metal engraver. The name Karmakar, which is engraved at the bottom, suggests that this was a blacksmith. So the Karmakars, the shields and the lavas were the prominent castes in the business. The readers of Bhattala works too were a wider heterogeneous group composed of urban petty service people, small businessmen and traders, as well as a non-literate population displaced from the traditional occupational structures of patronage, living and working in Calcutta. So they were, uh, they, uh, again you find that they are artisans, traders, shopkeepers, industrial laborers and mill workers getting together at the end of the day, you know, probably sitting around in a book reading session or having books read out to them in, uh, in, a, in a ritual setting where, you know, religious books, holy literature is being read out and people are listening to them, as well as, of course, the more sensational tales that I've talked about. Women, and they are interesting as well as readers, they're, they're taking to education, in big numbers by the mid-19th century. Uh, even though they do not go to schools, there's a Zenana education or education that's carried on within the women's quarters known as the Zenanas. And um, this enables uh, larger groups and circles of women to enter the, 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 the readers uh, uh, group that I'm talking about. So by the 1860s and 70s, Antapur or Zenana education had produced a considerable body of women literates. While public libraries were de developing a refined literary taste in reading, for significant numbers of educated males, women escaped this influence unless they received individual attention at home or in school. Lack of access to such refined, again within quotes, collections for women very often meant that they read whatever came their way, and they were voracious readers, I can tell you that. 
As the missionary long noted in 1857, I quote, if females are not supplied with the good books, they will be sure to read the bad ones, unquote. And he went on to report one such case where he had encountered, that he had encountered in which a Bengali woman had requested her European teacher to procure for her the licentious tale of Vidya Sundar. Incidentally, that is from the licentious tale of Vidya Sundar. It's, it's about this uh, forbidden romance between these two characters. Uh, so this is what she wanted to read, poor woman, but this isn't what she got. So instead, she was, uh, she was turned down and instead given Sushila, or the ideal girl, uh, one of the publications of the Vernacular Literature Society uh, that related the tale of this good girl, the ideal girl. The other thing that I haven't touched upon, and I don't have scope to do that here, is about language. So if you look at the highly refined books that were coming out of the Mohaibrao presses, it's very Sanskritized, this language. It's not the language that's spoken by people. It's not the language they are familiar with. So you, know, you, you have to be acculturated to, to understand and appreciate that kind of language. So that's not what our women readers wanted. They wanted the more colloquial, they wanted the more sensational, and yet they were being deprived of that. Of course, they did manage to read. There are some really interesting tales of how booksellers would come around, women booksellers would come around to the house, and the women of the household would gather around them when the men are not around, because of course this is happening in the inner quarters, and they would procure the naughtiest kind of books that you can think of, you know, uh, far away from the, from the guardianship of the, of the males. So this is uh, one of the kind of books, you can see this is, uh, it's an advertisement for a book uh, called The Loved One or Adorini, and it's, it's about, if, 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 if uh, you can read what's uh, up there, uh, it tells you about a wayward women, woman who is, um, who is supposed to teach you virtues, you know, this is the life that you should not lead, but really what you're doing is, in quite an underhand manner, talking about the sinful life of this woman, which can be quite saucy. But this is the kind of stuff that they would love to read, and this is the kind of stuff that they lay their hands on. The poet and colonial servant Nobin Shen describes his dismay when on return to his native village in 1866, after some years in Calcutta, he realized what female education had done to his land. Part of communal reading sessions of traditional ethics and religious literature had grown out of fashion with women, he laments. Novels had taken over the position of traditional manuscripts. Okay, now, I think it's at this point that it would be good to give you a sense of what was coming out of these presses. Um, and I think you already have a sense of what's being produced, but let me give you a sense of the numbers, the volumes of particular genres that are coming out of these presses. Now, the average annual production of these presses ranged from between 8,000 to 47,000 copies, and that's huge compared to the highbrow presses, which would be you know, much less than 8,000. Uh, and the largest genres that they produced were, of course, uh, you know, almanacs, uh, books on mythology and Hinduism, uh, religious works and so on, but also uh, secular works in, uh, in the kind of uh, Perso-Arabic Bengali 
that I talked about before, the, the very kind of Bengali that was being stamped out, and you have a great deal of production in that kind of Bengali, which was then known as Musliman Bengali, that was coming out of these presses. There's a lot of fiction, uh, a lot of dramas, and the average print runs for these are 2,000 to 3,000, whereas again, compared to the highbrow presses, which have about print runs of about 500. So you have a good sense of, uh, of, of how, how much popular these books are. At this point, I want to introduce you to these two brothers. Uh, so this is the Diamond Library, which is established in Calcutta in 1887. It's the oldest surviving library uh, from the Bhattala days in Calcutta. And these are the descendants, the direct descendants of Nadechad Shil, who was the founder of the original Diamond Library in Calcutta at the time. And I met the gentleman sitting in the middle when I was doing my PhD a long time back. And I went back two years back to do this radio program. And he was still there. And it's amazing, he still comes and sits in that little shop. And that's his brother, I think. Um, so so these, these are the proprietors of the Diamond Library. And at this point, I think it would also be a good idea to uh, play a little clip where I'm talking to these gentlemen and they're telling me about the book trade from those times uh, which is part of the radio program that I did um, in 2017. <laughs> nice to give you a flavor of you know this this business which is still part of the book market that I showed you at the start of my lecture the, the covering uh, PowerPoint uh, as it were that's pretty much the scenario that you find in Calcutta today Calcuttans still love books 
and this is a thriving book market. They sell all kinds of different stuff today, no longer your mythologies and sensational. There are some sensational romances, but not a great deal. But uh, more to do with educational texts these days, but still functioning very much as the center of religious literature um, uh, in, in, other, in, in other forms. So a lo lot of ritual literature, examples of which I have with me, and I'll show you later on. So a lot of this had uh, earned the wrath of the colonial administrators because it was uh, seen as, uh, these were seen as obscene publications and there's an Obscene Publications Act that is passed in 1856, very much along the lines of the one that's passed in Victorian England. And the, the measures are draconians. If you're caught, you, can, you have to pay a huge fine, but you can also be imprisoned for a very long time. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really uh, amazing to think that despite this, people were writing and selling and publishing these kinds of works. And, and you know, they, they did not manage to stamp out this trade because they were just so very popular. So there's only one such popular genre that I'm going to talk to you today about, which are the Bakkala farces, and these are on secular themes. Uh, um, but also very racy in, in terms of the style of the language, in terms of their content. So these are social critiques, but the style is very racy. The language is very abusive. And the idea here is to gain an understanding of how they engaged with and negotiated the various elements in the dominant literary culture. For not only are they representative of the typical non-educational Bhaktala productions that dominated the book market in the second half of the 19th century, but more significantly these were precisely the kind of strands against which the reformist literary project structured itself. So I'm talking about the success of these strands that they were trying to stamp out. From the mid-1870s onwards, a new genre of literature began to figure prominently at Bartala and became the target of colonial and patriarchal reformers. Social farces dwelling on dissolute urban life suddenly swept the print market in the mid-1870s. The farces, or prohoshon as they were called, were peculiar to the literary landscape of Bengal and a product of the Bengali commercial presses that enjoyed a wide readership. Published as small pamphlets of not more than 40 pages and costing between one and four annas, which is very cheap and affordable, I can tell you, the average print run figures for these works stood between 1,000 and 3,000. They were written in the form of short skits in a language that was racy and abusive, often by anonymous authors who voiced a stringent critique of the educated and the well-to-do in society. And of the known writers, most came from the urban, petty bourgeois, lower caste groups. Standing outside the bounds of respectable mainstream literature, the farces offer an insight into all that ran counter to it. Wise rustic folk, maidservants and prostitutes in these farces are contrasted with scenes of prosperous, a middle-class educated licentiousness, hypocrisy and falsehood. While their language and content was deemed outside the bounds of literary respectability, the farces themselves were questioning the very basis of this respectability. Their strong moral tone mocked the promiscuous lifestyles of urban men and women, frauds and hypocrites posing as reformers and holy men, and villains of contemporary scandals. They found an eager readership among large sections of immigrant lower middle class groups in Calcutta, still fiercely loyal to traditional social mores and distrustful of the vices that they associated with the new urban culture. 
But the less printer publishers were opportunities for excellence and cashed in on themes of social concern, lacing them with sensation. And this is a very good example, I'll come to this now. Sizzling social themes drawn from contemporary scandals were at, at once seized upon and made the subject for a drama. In 1875-76, Calcutta was rocked by a scandal in which a young married woman by the name of Elokeshi was murdered by her husband on suspicion of adultery. The incident created waves in the commercial print world. It was immediately reported in a host of songs, dramas and farces with a powerful moral message. And you have this image here it's in a very dramatic act. He chops off the head of his wife with uh, a fish knife. Um, and she is, well, it's, it's very controversial. We really don't know what happened, but he suspects her of adultery. And this is a kind of typical male anxiety, which is really gnawing away at the men's, um, you know, at those men who uh, arrive into Calcutta for work and they leave their families behind. So, you know, they're, they're forever thinking about, you know, what do the women get up to? And this is kind of a crystallizing of those kind of anxieties in real life and that happens. So there's a lot of sympathy amongst the leadership for the husband, funnily enough, not the woman, because of course she's the one who has erred, and uh, he is uh, the one who needs to be uh, exonerated. But uh, the justice uh, system sees it very differently, so he's actually punished because of what he did. But it, you have a very different narrative that's coming out of popular literature. The Bengal Library reports seem to indicate that fast writing, in particular in its initial stages, took off from and centered a lot around this incident, so it's a very important incident for us. Um, there are other genres that I could have gone into, but I think for reasons of brevity I shall uh, not go into them. But I can tell you a bit about them without uh, dwelling on them at length. And these are topical uh, events again being reported in, in these pamphlets, so not just social themes but also real life events, like the cyclone which hits Calcutta in 1864. So this is this cyclone we know which happened. You can find the, the ships, they're being utterly destroyed, the trees have been uprooted. This is along the river Hooghly, which is a distributary of the Ganges along which a lot of the jute mills uh, stand. Um, and there's a lot of farce, uh, no, sorry, a lot of songs that are being produced uh, based on this uh, topic of the cyclone. But again, you know, these, the authors find scope to talk about social events and talk about social issues. But just to give you a sense of anything that was current, they were almost like you know your tabloid newspapers of today. Anything that was current, anything that kind of um, impacted on people's lives was immediately uh, seized upon and written about. So, what I have been trying to do here is to talk about a kind of literature that is very different from the standardized high literary prose Bengali that we are familiar with and we associate very much with Indian nationalism. But that kind of history has been written, it's been done. But what we have not sufficiently appreciated for a long time 
is this prodigious vernacular printing and publishing industry that is operating almost parallelly at the same time. And for a long time, it was not important for our social historians because we were more concerned with the educated and the, and the nationalists. And it was telling us a different story. But what this allows us to do is to get away at layers within the printed world that we were perhaps not very familiar with earlier on. And it also helps us to critique this whole concept of renaissance in Bengali literature where under Western influence, you know, uh, there's this whole uh, mass of literature that is being produced that Bengalis can be proud of. Most importantly for me, groups previously thought to inhabit the peripheries of the world of print are recognized as shaping print cultures that questioned dominant ideas about literary styles and aesthetics, social power and prestige, including non-literate readers. Thank you.